So that's why I think it's really kind of hard to kind of understand at an individual level when we have this culture that sort of celebrates meritocracy at so many levels, that the notion that that something that I achieve might not have been entirely attributable to just my effort. It's a threatening notion to sort of introspect on, I think, for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Okay, so we are back in the studio, Studio 49, and we have a dear friend of the pod, Bryce Ward. He's back. It's very good to be here. If, 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 here. Like here. We're actually here in the studio, in person. It feels a little weird. We're taking risks. Yeah, we are taking some risks. But the benefits of getting away from our children for an hour were sufficient to- I uh, suppose that's <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The notion of going to work to get a break is just, there's there's a lot of, that's warped in, in a few different ways. But uh, yeah, I think we have some solidarity there. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks for coming in. It has been a while since we sort of put the, the COVID collab on um, midterm hiatus, but uh, it seems like maybe a good good place to start would be to just kind of get a sense for where we're at. I mean, if you're anything like me, Bryce, which I assume you have some similarity, it just feels like, what am I doing out there? You know, I see the numbers going up in our community. I get like anxious when I see out-of-state plates. I have all these like, sort of, uh, yeah, like these these base instincts sort of start to surface that uh, I, I don't really like, but at the same time, I don't know what's what's a smart way to live right now. Yeah, it's our lack of a clear vision of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how it's supposed to all operate frustrates me greatly. Yeah. And yeah, the, the natural manifestation of that is to look at the outsider and be like, are you bringing disease into the community? Right, right. right. Are you I bringing mean, this to me from your place? You know, Go back there. We didn't have any a couple of weeks ago. Right, And right. now we have a little bit. And so somebody had to bring it here. And uh, so, yeah, so that that's a pretty natural instinct. And, you know, I actually spent more time than I probably should have given that I didn't actually do anything with it. Literally trying to calculate, like, how many cases were likely to import. Mm. Over the summer, okay. Given based on tourism inflows, yeah. So and you know, so, so, so I, you know, so ITRR, the Institute for Travel and Recreation Research, um, uh, they they keep that data, but they also have done a couple of surveys, and they put one out a couple of weeks ago, which was the more recent survey of well, who's still planning to come to Montana, and you know, it looked like at the time, and it's probably changed even since then, but you know, it was kind of like half of the people who had planned to come to Montana, yeah. we're still almost certainly going to come. Sure. And, and up- why not? If you were to look at a map, you know, three months ago, a month ago, whatever, even now, you look at a map, and you're like, Montana looks pretty good. And I I have anecdotal evidence of many people doing exactly that. And you looked at the Google searches too, yeah. Montana vacation a while back, yeah, I remember. Yeah, you know, it was all up. And, you know, if I look at my own life in terms of the set of people who normally, the, the number of people who normally come and visit us in the yeah. summer, it's about normal this year, mm-hmm. right? Uh and, you know, I think a lot of it's a little different, right? It's not, you know, there's probably some people who have changed how they're going to do stuff. But every time I drive past a campsite, it's full. Jammed. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and so it's, and I, so I was trying to figure out, okay, how many people are coming? What are the odds that each of them are, you know, and even at being super conservative in terms of, well, 
what are the odds that somebody actually has it is going to travel or even, you know, who had it at the time, you know, and it was like, we're going to import dozens of cases a day probably uh, as we go through the summer. And we're seeing large increases in the confirmed cases. But even now, I mean, I saw an estimate yesterday. We're likely only catching about a third of cases. Yeah. Um, it's a lot better than, you know. The, the testing's ten, way up, but still, we're you know, not. We're, yeah. You know, we're still only likely confirming. So confirmed cases are likely only a third of actual cases. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly uh, COVID out there. Um, and again, the lack of a clear vision of, okay, this is what we're doing. Uh, and I'm, look, I, I trust that the public health people have one. Sure. Uh, and it's probably on me that I haven't like gone after them and said, or figured out what they're actually doing. Um, but you know, I mean, the testing is still not as robust here in Missoula as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I think it's changing literally this week. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, now I think you can go to the fairgrounds pretty the, soon. The, the, the sort of notion of drive-through testing drive is through, actually becoming a thing. Without any kind of, yeah, yeah. Sim- you know, just like, uh, I just want to test. Quick go, swab, boom. Go get a test, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's, 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 I keep trying to convince people that we don't have to plan for the worst. Right. You know, I mean, I've sat in on these calls at the school district and, you know, and I'm sure what's going on here at the university. And oh, there's, yeah, we're in the thick of it. There's a lot of what I'll call, we're assuming that it's still March. Yeah. Right. And it's not March. And when we're planning for next fall, yeah, like obviously anything that takes place indoors is risky. Um, but we know in the abstract, we know how to contain viruses. Mm-hmm. Right. Viruses require humans to interact with each other to spread. They require humans to interact with each other in certain ways, in certain situations. We learn more about that with this particular virus. But, you know, with a robust testing infrastructure, with a good contract tracing infrastructure and real quarantine, we should be able to dramatically reduce. We can't get it to zero, right? This It does travel presymptomatically or asymptomatically. And so, like, look, there's going to be people that we're not going to know have it that are going to go out in the world. Right. But if it's low, right, we can then weigh, weigh that risk of, okay, yeah, it's out there. Well, and this, that, this was sort of the, the whole kind of other side of the flattening the curve conversation, right? I mean, we, did, we wanted to sort of lengthen the tail so that the healthcare system was not overwhelmed. At least here in Montana, the healthcare system was not overwhelmed. So an amount of the disease floating around is part of the plan, if you will. Yeah. And it's just a question of what level of risk can we get it to? And yeah. given that we had it, you know, we had zero cases in Missoula County for a long right, time. Right. And, you know, yeah, keeping it at zero was never going to be feasible given movement in and out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, keeping it low, which we still have, to be fair. I mean, we in Missoula County specifically. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing okay. Other parts of Montana are certainly seeing spikes. But, you know, that's the question of, okay, when it does... We do get a little bit of an ember. How quickly can we snuff it out? Because if we can prove that we can do that, right, then the rest of our lives all get a lot better. And when you say snuff it out, are you suggesting through some of the distancing and other closure measures that we took previously? Well, no. I mean, when we're saying, okay, we have two cases, yeah, right? When we can, if we can round up the contacts, keep them quarantined until we know that they don't have it, yeah, you know, and test and do all the kinds of things that 
other countries have done more successfully, then we can say, okay, great. Like, yeah, risk isn't zero, but if it shows up, we're testing pretty amply, we're going to see it pretty quickly, and we're going to contain it. Sure. Right? Yeah. Just like, you know, just like in a forest fire, right? Like, the goal is to quickly contain it and keep it from, you know, exploding, right? And just like with a forest fire, there's a huge amount of randomness, right? It's not just... Oh, every forest fire turns into a big conflagration. Many, most of them don't. Right? It's like 98% of them we manage to contain pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same was with the virus. This is a weird virus. It doesn't spread linearly. It's not just, oh, if I get it, I'm going to give it to two people, right? It frequently is the case where if I get it, I'm going to spread it to 100 people. Sure. And you're not going to spread it to anybody. And, and so, you know, we have to be able to deal with, yeah, there's going to be some risk. But again, ideally, we would have had these conversations at some point a long time ago where we would have kind of decided, okay, as long as it's low this level, then we're willing to do these types of activities and or these types of activities with this type of modification, right? And this is where things like mask become like a big part of the, sure. the, the of the of the insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Right. As the goal is we just keep it out. But does it ever enter the building, right? You know, if it doesn't come inside, uh how's the transmission appear pretty low? Right. Right. And so if we can keep it out by if we keep it out of the community then it can't enter our buildings and if we keep it out of the building then we can kind of whatever we're doing inside the building we can yeah we probably want to be a little bit more cautious than normal but if you're thinking about school like if i'm pretty sure i mean i'm not pretty sure i'm very sure that it's unlikely to be there because we don't have cases in the community and we're testing you know doing temperature screenings and symptom screenings and kind of enforcing all that Uh uh-huh then what I need to do inside the building becomes much less onerous. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I don't have to figure out how to be like six feet apart from every person in the building. And all the, the surface building. management and, and all that stuff. Exactly. Yep. Right? And so the goal should be like, let's keep it as far away as possible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's the concern with the fact that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy if you're an island, right? New Zealand has a big advantage. Sure. Right? <laughs> Any person who wants to come into the country, they can test, quarantine, you know, and they can kind of be pretty sure that they're capturing. I'm sure somebody can get in on a boat or whatever it is. But, like, for the most part, uh, if you want to get into New Zealand, you've got to go through yeah. the process. Yeah. Right? And I I used to, at least, I'm not sure I was fully joking, but at least quasi-joking that, you know, just like we check all the boats for muscles – we should be checking every person for COVID that wants to come into Montana, uh, you know. But of course, that requires that's the yeah, level of infrastructure that, that would be a real challenge. Yeah, you know. You know the other thing, and, and I this is this is somewhat delicate to talk about, but one of you know, there's communications challenges with all this, as we've discussed, and, and I think. You know, I think in Missoula, we've done a good job of that. I think in Montana, we've done a pretty good job with communications. Nationally, not so much. Um, but one of the things that kind of gets lost is, you know, there there is this a little bit of an expectation that zero is is the number. And yeah, it's absolutely the number we want. Like, we don't want any COVID-19 in our community. But at the same time, like, any community accepts a level of various things that cause sickness, death, all kinds of problems. Like there's a level of risk associated with driving. There's a level of risk associated with, 
you know, any number of things. And, and I don't want to necessarily equate these, but as a society, if, if we sort of hold up zero as our objective, then we maybe ignore the, a lot of important trade-offs. Exactly. And we talked about this a little bit on the series. Like, yeah, if we go into severe lockdown again, I mean, there, there's depression, anxiety, health, other health effects that have real effects on mortality associated with all those things. And, and it's, those are really hard conversations to have, but they, those, those trade-offs and, and balances need to be kind of reckoned with publicly, I think. Exactly. You know, I mean, this is the – you have to – and again, if, if you're talking about the university or the school system or, you know, some sort of larger public entity, ideally we would have had a conversation about what's the goal. Exactly. Right? The, 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 obviously, the ideal is zero. Mm-hmm. But what level of infection associated with the university are we willing to tolerate? Yeah. Right? Because we know that there are benefits associated with the university uh, and operating as close to normal as possible. Right? And so it, we, it's, this is trade-offs. This is basic trade-offs. Right. right? It's, you know, and yes, not everybody agrees. And that's where it's hard. This is where social capital would be much you, very useful right now, mm-hmm. right? If we had the people who could have the difficult conversations about well, what level of risk are we targeting? Because I don't think it's zero, right? Nothing that we're doing in our communities right now says that well, we're targeting zero risk. Yeah, but and zero would... is hugely problematic for an institution like the University of Montana because it, it also creates a bunch of sort of expectations of liability, right? That's right. If you, if you hold up zero as your as your goal... And then you get one case and there's one person gets sick or one person get you know has has a negative outcome. Are we liable to lawsuit if we put zero as our goal, if we put that sort of stake in the ground? Yeah, exactly, right? And then you know, and it's it's not to say that people shouldn't be liable in some degree. And that's sure. the that's the that's the conversation, right? We need to be establishing, okay, you're liable if you do X, Y, and Z. Right. right. Not if you let any case happen. Sure. Right. And, you know, I mean, the goal really should be we want to avoid significant outbreak. Right. And again, you know, I mean, the question that I would like to know the answer to is, say, over the course of, say, the semester. Right. Or, you know, if you're talking to some other entity over the course of the fall or some season. Mm hmm. How many cases that are attributable in some form? Obviously, we don't get precise attribution always, but like, you know, are we comfortable with, right? Because I don't think that number should be zero. Right. Um, And in some sense, that goes back to this notion of a dial, right? Mm -hmm. As the odds of, you know, okay, we saw a few more than we'd like. Does that mean we go all the way to lockdown and remote learning and all that kind of stuff? Or we're like, okay, now now we're going to move to a, you know, if cases are very low in Missoula, right? If we were where we were two weeks ago, then... You know, I would have said, look, we should just keep it out of the building. Sure. Do, you know, be pretty rigorous about if you have any kind of a symptom, we're not letting you in the building. Uh-huh. Um, but other than that, I would have said, look, let's try and do things as close to normal as possible or sure. within reason, right? And, you know, de- that depends on the level of schooling you're dealing with or whatever it is. You know, I mean, you can ask a college kid to wear a mask. It's probably harder to get a kindergartner to wear a mask. Um, all day <laughs> Depends long. on the context, I you know, suppose. But. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Unless you get to wear a superhero mask all day long yeah. or whatever. But, yeah, yeah. you know, but, you know, and that's, and then, but, oh, okay, well, risk is up a little bit. Now let's move into alternating schedules and, you know, all the other things that people are talking about in terms of how do we keep 
people away. And right. obviously, you know, depending on your individual level of risk, there may be some modifications and accommodation. So, you know, getting the accommodation for people and all that kind of stuff, depending on – we don't have to have a specific level of risk. but We have to have bands around which, okay, if you're in this level, we're willing to tolerate this. And if you're outside of this level, if you're, you know, if you're older, if you have one of the conditions, yada, 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 then we're going to change – you know, we'll try and accommodate you differently and we'll try – you know, and yeah, this is a lot of work. It's a ton of work. It's a ton yeah. of work. But – the benefit, you know, as long as the benefit of doing that work are large, and I think they are, yeah, we should be doing that work, right? And we should be collectively supporting that work uh, with the resources that it needs to be done. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think we're we're sort of recording this uh, a couple of days after the university sort of. Um, I don't know if we published it uh, or if we sort of distributed it internally, but you know, an eighty-one page document sort of outlining our recommendations, policies, procedures for the fall semester. And I think that's exactly the the notion of, of what we're trying to do. We gotta we gotta kinda get on the same page. And that's hard as an institution, even the size of, of University of Montana to to do that. Um, the other thing I think is it's so tempting, at least I feel this in my own brain, to like just think of this as on or off. You know, is it is like this dichotomous thing? It's either a thing I should pay attention to, or we're done. And this will be a way a way for us to transition into the second half of our conversation. Um, you know, we have the murder of George Floyd, the associated demonstrations, protests, rebellions, and it was so easy to sort of completely forget that coronavirus was a thing. And, and in many ways, like. A lot of people did sort of not, either not forget, but they said, you know, this is more important. I guess it's got to take my attention, um, whether that's you know, a member of the media covering it, whether that's somebody going out and participating in the demonstration, whatever. But it was it was sort of easy to be like, oh, yeah, the coronavirus was it's gone now. We've moved on to other things. Um, but it hasn't gone. <laughs> I mean, there's all this sort of like. The, the, the sort of, hey, there will be a second wave. Like, we're not really done with the first wave. Um, but maybe this is a good time to pivot the conversation because, you know, and, and full, you know, we've tried to kind of get into this in the podcast. And, and here we are, you know, two white guys in, in 94% white Montana um, trying to reckon with the notion of, of racism. But I think we have to do it. We have to sort of put our best foot forward. Um what I think I'd like to maybe try to wade into today, Bryce, is I don't know if there's a good sort of public understanding of the difference between individual racism, like individual racist people, and then systematic racism and what that is. Um, individual racism, we kind of all sort of have a, a lay understanding of. Um, At what the extreme level, anyway. Right? It's, it's easy to yeah. understand. Yeah. Uh, a truly white supremacist person who views minorities as inferior to them and acts in accordance with that. Right, right. Now, the spectrum of racist ideas, I guess, uh, you know, I, I, I want to try and avoid the racist as pejorative, you are a racist, sure. and think more of racism as there are there are individual racist acts and individual racist ideas and most of us at some point or, or other probably have engaged in a racist act or a racist idea. Right, right. But that doesn't mean that we should 
you know, or even focus on whether or not you are a racist or not. Let's just focus on because that, that makes it very personal and it's easy to be defensive, right? Which is why we have a lot of conversation about. No, no, I'm not a racist. Right. And then we point to the things that make us not a racist. And it's like, yeah, no, maybe those don't make you a racist. But these other things that you've done are racist. So we don't need you to be a racist, just like we don't need you to be, uh, you know, I don't know, any other identity. Right. It doesn't need to be an identity. It just can be like, okay, I support a policy with racist or I have engaged in an activity that's racist. And let's just focus on, you know, we can talk about at the individual level. That's what we want to focus on. But your larger question, individual level racism is important to the extent that it explains the systemic racism, the policies. Presumably it all rolls up into that. But they can sort of be separated, right? Mm -hmm. And we can certainly address them far more efficiently. It's one thing to try and convert every individual racist, you know, I mean, and that's the thing to do, right? Is, you know... Uh, you know, uh, Abraham Kennedy and how to be an anti-racist. He talks about racism as like addiction, right? It's something you have to fight every day, sure, right? But that's an enormous amount of work for individuals. And I must say that that shouldn't be done. Or, But in terms of how do we make the most change quickly, that's the policy side, right? Sure. I mean, where, where, <laughs> Which where, is kind of funny to think about, like that's where to make change quickly. But I think you're right in this instance. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we can do things which have the effect of being anti-racist, which have the effect of, in, you know, holding us to our national ideals of equality, of opportunity. Sure. Uh, by finding places where that opportunity is currently being systemically impeded and saying, okay, well, how can we remove that? And the challenge, obviously, is that, look, this is a thorny problem. Yeah. Right? And before we kind of get into the dynamics of the problem and maybe some of the policy prescriptions around it, Let's just draw that out. Like what – like when you when we hear the term systemic racism, what, what does it mean? Or what does it mean to you? What, what, how would you define it? Um, basically, it's where there, there's a whole series of practices and policies which have the effect of creating disparities in outcomes right. that are – yeah, they're based on either – sometimes explicitly based on uh, separating – the races, Mm -hmm. right? And historically, those were very common. They are less common today, but they still exist, right? And so, you know, and they add up in terms of, and we can go through basically any part of our society, right? Whether it's law enforcement, education, healthcare, uh, property ownership, uh, we can kind of go through it all. Sure. And I can find you specific policies which either by intent or impact, disproportionately uh, exclude minorities, in particular African-Americans, but other minorities frequently, uh, in ways that when you add them all up, they create this large disparity, which is frequently then used as justification for why these things are, you know, they're, they, you know, they become the source of... Right, right, right. Circular you know, logic. It's just circular. Yep. It's like, well, of course, you know, yeah, they're... Uh, they're not as smart or they're more criminal or whatever it is. Then it's like, well, no, it's if we unwound the whole circle, mm-hmm. um, certainly like there, there are genetic differences across people, but I don't think the genetic differences that exist are, you know, to the extent that they exist and we found anything, they're tiny. Right. Right. They do not explain the massive things that we observe. Uh, and so, you know, we have to say, okay, well that's systemic 
racism, right? It's the fact that, you know, here, uh, uh, an old study from kind of 15 years ago, which looked at, uh, I was in Broward County, Florida, and they changed how they identified talented and gifted students in the second grade. Okay. Right. It used to be entirely at the discretion of parents and teachers. Right. But they said, well, let's, let's impose that we'll put a test, we'll test everybody. And if you read a certain score on the first test, then you take a second test. Okay. Right? And the share of the odds that an African-American or Hispanic person were identified for TAG tripled. Right? That's, that's not necessarily racist intent, right? But that is racist implication, right? Sure. Because it separates races and not based on any kind of, you know, again, objective reality here. Mm-hmm. It was just based on perception, Right. Yeah. And then you've got this like second mechanism that separates people. And then for the people participating in those mechanisms, it probably reinforces at the individual level some lay notion of differences that can compounds effects. That's right. I mean, so many of these things like that's one thing is, you know, you and I exchanged some some literature about the disparities um, in policing and in sentencing. And, and it occurs to me that there's these tremendous compounding effects across these, these all of these things. Like if you think, if you look at the justice system, right? It's like who's getting stopped more frequently, and then who's getting convicted at higher rates, and then who's getting sentenced to longer sentences, and who's getting the death penalty more frequently, and who's get or on the other end of it, who's getting paroled at a lower rate or later into their terms? Like all these things kind of compound. Um, and roll up into some some terrible effects in aggregate. Exactly, right? I mean, you know, in every single step that you just went through, we have observed racial disparities, right? So it starts literally at the the stop level. Mm-hmm. Who gets stopped by police? Well, we, I mean, to say it starts there is sort of problematic it's too right, in the sense of like – it starts with, yeah, the testing in the kid's school right. or, or you know, we can go back pretty far. Yeah. And so, you know, but in terms of just the our interactions with the criminal justice sure. system, right, yeah. it starts at the at the who gets stopped. And then it's, you know, what happens during the stop? And does that stop lead to use of force? Does it lead to arrest? And if it leads to arrest, does it lead to conviction if it's in front of a jury? Um, the same crime, so to speak, uh, gets you get different punishments yeah. uh, based on the race of the defendant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it just, yeah, it, it all winds up in into, yeah, and that's just what we're doing at the state level with criminal justice. Right. And then we do that in healthcare, right? And, you know, in healthcare, obviously there's access issues because we've tied uh, health insurance to employment and then, at the employment level, there is disparities, uh, you know, and evidence of discrimination in, in sure. a variety of contexts. Um, so that obviously makes you less likely to have health insurance. But even if you get into the healthcare system, there's the investment in the healthcare system and how much money goes into hospitals that are predominantly serving minority communities or not. And then it literally gets to the level of your doctor, right? Two years ago, a study came out where they actually randomized your doctor once okay. you came into a large healthcare system. Sure. And it turns out that if you matched a black person with a black doctor, their outcomes got a lot better. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. 
Hey, this is Ryan Tutel of ESPN Radio in Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Um, and that was two-sided. One is that African-Americans, again, in part due to a history of what, how they were treated, uh, sure. and, you know, experimented on, et cetera, sometimes don't trust the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. But when you gave them a, an African-American doctor, they were much more willing to comply with treatment or do, you know, follow the recommendations and yada, yada, yada. But on the flip side, we also know that sometimes doctors don't believe African-Americans, um, you know, and at a greater rate than they don't believe other. That's patients. right. Right. So for instance, you know, one of the, one of the explanations for why the African-American community has been late to the opioid crisis uh, is because doctors wouldn't prescribe them opioids. Oh, sort of having uh, this sort of a biased view that they'd be more likely to get addicted. No, they, they don't. They don't feel pain. Right? Oh, that's, okay. That's frequently, okay. the thing yeah, is yeah, that yeah. you know, yeah. you know, they don't take their pain as seriously, or they treat it differently. Sure. Right. So again, that, yeah, that triggers so many just mythologies and what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's just there's you know, and look, we're a multiracial society, mm-hmm. and people are different. And there are going to be different cultures and there, you know, so we have to be able to, you know, not, this isn't about, we have to treat everybody the same, but we have to learn how to treat everybody with good manners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this stuff manifests itself in a whole bunch of different ways that lead to the disparities and outcomes that we see, right? And it's not to say that, you know, every individual person we can say all of this stuff is exactly, you know, Everybody, everybody's individual outcomes are their own little recipe uh, of of disadvantage. Um, you know the headwinds that are created by systemic racism, right? Right, and they manifest for different people in a lot of different ways. Um, it's not to say that every person has the, a uniform experience, but to the extent that essentially we've put minorities in a stronger wind tunnel, uh, you know, it's not surprising that they don't end up at the same level. And when you've kept them in a wind tunnel of different degrees for 400 years, uh, yeah, that's that's gonna you, you know it adds up, yeah. right? And yeah. so and so you know that's where it's there's yeah you know, there's the historical stuff that adds up. There's the contemporaneous stuff that adds up, and you know there's the contemporaneous policy, but there's also just the behaviors of individuals, and you know collectively, obviously that's a hard problem to try and get your head around because it's basically. Everywhere it's the kind of I think I don't know, I think it's Kareem Abdul Jabbar, but I don't know exactly who said it. But like racism is like dust, hmm. you know. You when you shine a light on it, you see it, but when you don't, you know, it's always there. It's, it's a, but it's always there, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think it gets it's tough because like as individuals, we don't, you know, we're not very good intuitive statisticians. The research has sort of proven that or demonstrated that, but I do think there's this like. This is why I, I've been using the term tailwind, and, and now even more so because I think that the term privilege is becoming, I don't want to say meaningless, that's not, but it's just, it's become politicized mm-hmm. in a way. And people are like, well, shit, I worked really hard for all everything I have. I don't have privilege. And your perception might be exactly that. You might have totally bootstrapped yourself from nothing and, 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 and achieved a ton of success. And so, you know, if you think about it in terms of going on a walk or going on a bike ride or something where there's a tailwind in your life, you, 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 if it's always been there, you don't really know it's there until you turn around and you, you face the headwind that you brought up earlier. 
so that's why I think it's really kind of hard to kind of understand at an individual level when we have this culture that sort of celebrates meritocracy at so many levels that the notion that that something that I achieved might not have been entirely attributable to just my effort. It's a threatening notion to sort of introspect on, I think, for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we definitely struggle with notions of fairness, right? Uh, you know, and that how strongly one feels fairness, that's a, something that, you know, at least Jonathan Haidt suggests is varies across the population. Mm-hmm. But um, everybody faces some form of headwind, Right, everybody, but almost everybody yeah. can point to the thing that they had to overcome and struggle with. And, everybody uh, can certainly cite something that they perceive right. as a headwind. And our culture, I certainly can tell you my headwind stories. Yeah, right. Like you know, we're we are trained to cultivate our stories of headwinds. Mm-hmm. Right. We are not trained to even identify our tailwinds. Right, and that's the problem. Right, is. Um, we all, and I, almost everybody I can, t- I know, I can tell you their headwind story, mm-hmm. right? Because it's what we share with each other. Sure. It's like, what did I overcome to get here? Because that's what makes a good story, right? Stories have to have, like, oh, I'm the protagonist, and where's the conflict, and I have to overcome the conflict. Yeah, but also, and, like, it drives uh, our feeling of self-efficacy. That's right. That's right. Uh, and that we can achieve things and provides motivation. Like, it's, there's a lot of good that comes of that, but there's problems as well. There, yeah, there's definitely problems in terms of, when it comes to thinking about the society, how do we structure the society? How do we level the playing field? Or, you know, I'm mixing metaphors, but how do we reduce the headwinds that others facing, that are, others are facing, you know, ideally in ways that don't necessarily just take from you. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if necessary, that might be required if we want to fr- truly achieve some vision of a just society where we're basically saying, yeah, okay, we're going to make it so that Things are more fair, right? And um, yeah, I've had very heated conversations with a whole lots of people over what does it mean for something to be fair and what is required for fairness and just is that even unfair, right? Because right? a lot of things which contribute to these disparities, a lot of people don't – they don't think of as unfair, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you what, know, what would be an example from these debates? Um one of the things that, you know, which isn't explicitly just race-based, but has a racial component because it's class-based, right, is, you know, just access to resources to cultivate the skills of your children. Okay. Right? Like, uh, I have access to a lot of things, and other people have access to even more than I do, uh, to make sure that my children, if they want to be whatever, can do so, Right. And so let's sharpen that up. So like COVID-19 happens, we go to shelter in place, school shut down. You have the ability to connect to high-speed internet, to get a laptop, to maybe hire somebody from the outside or enroll your child in some online. Or you have the time yourself and sure. the expertise yourself from your own education to provide a better home experience than some other people that you know, maybe aren't able to work from home or maybe... You know, have a whole host of other limitations on their ability to provide that education. Exactly. So here, let me, I'll make it very explicit, right? These are things that I have in my house that I know for a fact that many other households don't have and have struggled with during this particular period, Mm -hmm. right? I have two extra laptops and an iPad, 
I have a printer. Yep. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't, and that's proven I, a big cost in yeah, the last couple of weeks. Right. I have a printer. I have, uh, you know, and all the stuff to operate the printer, the toner cartridges, the paper, all that kind of stuff were all stuff that were just literally sitting right next to the printer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I have taught classes, uh, you know, so I know all of the material that obviously an elementary school kid knows because I've taught college level classes. Sure. And so I can, you know, I know how to, I know the material and I actually have an instinctive, you know, what a, a trained pedagogic technique, which some of my children hate, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you call it that, they'll you probably know. hate it. But yeah, but you know, the point is, is that like, you know, I'm, and the nature of my work is such that I can shift it around over time sure. so that I was able to say when we were still doing school, although we started again this morning because I felt we need more structure. Uh, you know, I was able to say, okay, great. These whatever two hours, I'm going to sit here at the table with you and I will keep moving you forward and I will help you whatever, over whatever barriers and all that kind of stuff. And that's, and then, you know, that's a weird unfairness of COVID but even if not, without COVID, right? Yeah, you know, COVID's just like, sort of an accelerant on all You know, of it. it's like, oh, okay. Um, you want to get into a fancy college? You know, some people hire fancy sat tutors, you know, or, um, you know, you want to be an athlete? Well, great. You know, you're nine years old and I've got you your own private coach, sure. right? Um, yep. yep. Who's going to work with you uh, and, you know, shape you into whatever it is that you want to be. And now, obviously... I won't say that coaching can overcome every issue. Yeah, there are limits but, to all of these effects, right? But, like, again, but the, this is the key. The, probabilistically, right, 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 it must pay off. Otherwise, I'm not sure all these people would spend all this time and money doing. So, the question that I think folks in in your position, my position, in aggregate or societally, must ask is, what are you willing to give up? to ensure that others have similar similar uh, level of resources. Now, the easy thing to say is, well, yeah, I'm willing to pay a little bit higher taxes to free up. And, and that's a big part of it. Um, but when you start talking about, like, you need to give up things, what are those things and what are you willing to give up? So, uh, or how should we even think about that? Yeah. So I'm going to answer, but I'm going to make you answer too. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's twofold. So part of this is, and I don't know how to enforce some of this, but there's also, there's, there's both the transfer of resources to those who don't have the resources, but there's also in either we should have laws or norms that perhaps limit some of the advantages that people provide mm. for you know there's you know and it's the notion of a referee yeah right yeah you know because that's what happens once you get into a formal structure right like you know if you're here at the university on a sports team you can't just practice all the time and you know there's like there's right, limits right. yep right you were a coach you sure could only there's, recruit you know certain number times of hours and, recruiting you know you got to maintain academic performance all that stuff yeah right and so what we have um and Obviously, it's very difficult to point to people and say, well, you shouldn't try and secure advantages for your children. Uh, that's a hard thing to to do. But, you know, to the extent that we can perhaps get people to, you know, say, okay, well, what's – am I behaving fairly here? Right. Um, and, you know, what can – what what's fair? 
right? And obviously, some people will cheat, and that where that's where it becomes a problem because now you have to create some sort of infrastructure to enforce the you know, rules and all that kind of stuff. But you know, in some sense, the byproduct of inequality, right, is okay. These we've talked about golden tickets, right? So yep. the golden ticket becomes more valuable. So therefore, it's more. I should invest more in making sure that you actually increase your probability of getting the golden ticket, and you know, and. There's a website now where you can go and you can actually see what changes your marginal probabilities of getting into Harvard. Really? Uh, because of this lawsuit that they just went through, oh, they had yeah. to put all their data out. So some economist basically wrote a big paper and then somebody else took their data and then made it into a website where you could basically say, you put in your SAT scores and you put in your sure. GPA and you basically click two boxes of, are you a recruited athlete or are you legacy. a legacy? Yeah, those right? are the two big ones. And so if you had something like my, you know, whatever, good grades and reasonably high stat scores, right? I, by myself, without either of those two things, I was like a, you know, whatever, three or 4% chance of getting sure. into Harvard, right? You know, click the legacy box, I go to a 25%. Mm-hmm. Click the recruited athlete, I go above 50. Um, and so, you know, these are advantages, right? And so, yeah, I should... The marginal change of if I can get my kid to be a recruited athlete versus moving their stat score by fifty points, yeah, the the investment is clear. Mm-hmm. Go be an athlete, right? Um, but the problem is, is that now we're basically we're just gobbling up these, you know, far too scarce resources, right? Why why there isn't a bigger Harvard or more Harvards at this point is hard to yeah, that's a big question. Oh, and and. It, that might actually change this fall, but that's sure. a whole nother episode. But yeah, but, uh, you know, so to the extent that we have all these kind of things which create advantage, right? And, you know, what do I, what am I willing to give up? I am willing to give up resources and I'm willing to certainly support policies which, you know, hopefully improve opportunity at every level. But, you know, yeah. so obviously starting with education and health because those are where, you know, we start as humans. Um yeah, but I I also think that we should have some notion of a referee, and I don't know if it needs to be a formal government referee. It might just be us collectively enforcing, you know, enforcing rules of yeah. saying, you know what, like if I'm doing this, I need to make sure that somebody else is doing this, right? Or maybe we should all just agree that you know what, we don't need to be putting all of this stuff into place and, you know, and, or maybe it's in this particular case with youth, we need to change how you get into college. Right. Cause that might yeah, change I, it all. I think that's probably a big part of it. I mean, I, th- I think the truth is it has to be both, right? Like if we leave it up to, I think norms are super powerful and we're sort of living through an experience of, of deteriorating norms and the consequences of that right now. Um, I, mean, I think of it myself, like it, it, if left to my own devices, I'm a competitive person and I will exhaust every opportunity for my own success or my children's success. And so I do think there has to be a referee because at the same time, like I'm a rule follower, you know, and if, if, they, if they make rules, I'm not going to break those rules. Not everybody feels that way. And that's a whole, that's kind of a, another issue, but you have to design a system that tries to be as close to an expression of fair as you can get. Now that creates a lot of debate and tension, but that that's what a government's for to it, me. Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I, when I used to teach equality, inequality, inequality in, in various classes, right. You know, you have these different notions of equality, right. So the equality of outcome, 
right? Which I don't think it's not a very American thing, right? We're not trying to no. you know get to everybody having the same result. Um, the thing that you know most Americans try and get to is you know there's equality under the law, which is the lowest thing, where we treat everybody the same under the law, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not sure we have achieved that yet either. But you know, with this no, just, I mean we. 20 minutes ago, we were talking yeah. about how we have totally failed on That's that. right. But, you know, there's some notion of a, we want some equality of opportunity. But yeah. true equality of opportunity requires that you take every child and you raise them collectively, right? right? right. So that's not going to happen. But to the extent that we can try and do something to make it so that we take a currently very sloped playing field or, you know, where there's a very large difference between headwinds and tailwinds, we just try and maybe back off some of the headwinds for some of the people by even a marginal amount, you know, moves us closer towards what I think our ideal should be. Yeah. And um, I I won't pretend to have the solutions for that. Um, but that, you know, I mean, that's what we're talking about now isn't even purely race-based, right? We know it affects race because race and class are linked. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there are, to the extent that there are explicitly racial headwinds, right? And you know, we've talked about some of those in terms of selection for TAG or, you know, police, you know, you're subject to, you know, the police force or, uh, you know, just interaction with the police. Those are things that we, you know, we can deal with that, right? And that would help us remove certain headwinds. And is, are, is any one of these by itself sufficient to solve the problem? No, no. right? These are necessary but not sufficient measures. And so, yeah, there's a long list of necessary but not sufficient. Um, but I am at least hopeful that, again, because this, this is all probabilistic, right? We're talking about, you know, when we roll the dice in our lives, what comes up. And if we can just make it so that it's a little bit more likely that, you know, people who have currently been disfavored or disfavored historically have a greater probability of success, that moves us closer, right? Yeah. And again, we have to make sure that when they succeed, they don't then suffer disproportionate consequences and, you know, some of that, you know, and that's what we see with the wealth gap, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, one of the most disturbing facts that I've seen is we have made progress in education, uh, you know, uh, but the the racial wealth gap has barely closed. In fact, it grew after the Great Recession. Hmm. But if you have a college degree and you're an African-American – uh, it basically, it, you know, there's no there's no premium to it. We talked about that several episodes ago. Right. There's a you know the premium has disappeared in amongst recent generations. Um, but the median wealth of a college, an African American college graduate, is, I believe, less than the median wealth of a white high school graduate. Hmm. Right. And you go, well, what's happening there? Right. Why is it that they can't? Their income actually is higher, right? They're, you know, the income gap isn't the same, but the wealth, their ability to build wealth has been stymied. And at least some research suggests that, that a lot of this has to do with, you know, being the first generation, the first person in your family with income. Sure. You know, yeah, you know that generational wealth. The, and... the generational wealth that basically says, well, you know, if you're a family of everybody has a college degree, like, well, you're not getting hit up by anybody. You're not the yeah. insurance policy no. for anybody, Right. Um, whereas when you're the first person in your family to have any kind of means, you're now part of the insurance policy for a larger group of people, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't, you know, 
I'm not having to bail out my siblings or anything, right? That's not like, you know, I guess it could happen. I mean, you're not planning for it. Yeah. I mean, it could happen, right? Yeah. And, and I'm sure, you know, it it might happen at some across some level of generations, sure. right? But like the notion that uh, I'm getting asked to bail people out on a regular basis, you know, that's just not something that I have to deal with. And I don't think that's a, not something that a lot of mm-hmm. – people who are multi-generational, right? And we talked about the, you know, earlier, like one of the greatest predictors of who gets a college education is if your parents already got a college yeah. education, right? And so, you know, you kind of build up this security and I, you know, I've got literally hundreds of gener- years, you know, does you know, almost a dozen generations of people in this country uh, who have, in, you know, I can't go back that far, but I can certainly go back to choices that, what, my great-great-grandparents made and, you know, say, yeah, okay, I see how that's affecting my life right now, right? You know, it's certainly affecting my grandparents still and, you know, my parents to a lesser degree and, you know, that all then manifests itself here, right? Like, that's the advantage of, you know, that's the tailwind, to avoid right. the privilege term, right. right, of, you know, being a white male person who has, you know, yeah, I mean, like back to the Mayflower, uh, you know, or the, the revolution on one side and the revolutionary, pre-revolutionary war on the other side. Like it's, you know, that's, you know, the Homestead Act in particular, I can say, yeah, like the government gave my great grandparents a bunch of land that then got translated into my grandmother's retirement fund. Sure. Uh, You know, so it's... and it compounds. It compounds. Yep. And you wonder, you know, as you're talking about like some of the small ways you can unwind this, you know, you, you wonder too if there's compounding effects in the other direction. Hopefully there are. I mean, I think about this and we're sort of coming up against the end of our time and I don't want to necessarily open up too many threads, but we can continue down this at a later conversation. You know, you think about like legitimacy when it comes to power, right? And so, you know, you know, I, I talk to family or friends or whoever, and they see some of the protests going on associated with George Floyd murder, and, and people are like, well, you know, just listen to the cops, and you'd be fine. You know, the cops are the authority. You just listen to the cops to do what they tell you to do. That was your mistake. You got to do what they tell you to do. Same time, like, from from the perspective of, you know, a white man of privilege, like the cops have legitimacy. But I'm sure for, for, for many black folks, like cops are not legitimate. And so the sort of the, the, the acknowledgement or the sort of that whole thing, like if you create a system that starts to equalize some of these headwinds, tailwinds, et cetera, do those systems sort of gain more legitimacy in the, in, in the minds of the groups that have sort of viewed them as illegitimate or, or at least somewhere between not working in our favor in any meaningful way to illegitimate. There's some continuum there, right? But, but Yeah, I mean, it's um, obviously, yeah, it's the notion that, and I, you know, I would hope at this point that some of these videos have, have belied the notion of, oh, the cops are justified in what they've done to yeah. you, right? Like yeah. at last I checked, um, a lot of these crimes were not capital crimes, and if the state wanted to kill you, you had to go through a very prolonged legal process. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fact that anybody would justify uh, what is effective, effectively a state 
execution because you, quote unquote, didn't listen to the cops, I find very troubling. Um, And I think you're right that how I respond to you is very much related to how legitimate you are. And, you know, and this is where, you know, there's some notion that we could have a better police system where those relationships exist and, you know, interactions with law enforcement are not, I mean, even for me, I find interaction with law enforcement to be very stressful. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, And I can't imagine. My wife teases me, like, you know, police car comes up behind us and I'm freaking out. It's like, what's going to happen to me? Right? Like, that's the whole point of this conversation. Exactly. Really, I shouldn't have much fear. Well, and- but I do. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Because you give the police some legitimacy. I, yeah, but like the notion that I have fear. Yeah. Right? When I, the notion that a police officer is going to shoot me, it's never crossed my mind. Right. Right? I, you know, I'm not being trained from a young age into like, this is literally how you're supposed to interact with the police officer. Um, and to the extent that I've been trained to interact with the police officers because I knew them. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it was right. that guy who lived around the corner and, you know, the kid I went to high school with. Or like, um, you know, I remember I did get pulled over once uh, when I was in high school. And um, the guy looked at me and looked at my thing. And he says, is your dad, you know, and he says, my dad's name is like, you know, my mom used to work with your dad. And you always was like, you know, he was always real nice to her. I said, you know, sent me on my way. Right. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a big bl- gust of tailwind you know, right there. Exactly. Right. This is the level of, you know, that, you know, this is how I'm engendered to interact with police officers yeah. is like, oh, yeah, well, like, you know, OK, this is the, the people that, you know. Yeah. And, you know, we don't in a lot of communities. That is not the relationship that you have with police officers. And um Obviously, what we're seeing is this a large expression of a bunch of people, a large share of people who do not view the police as a legitimate force. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, what it means to change that, that has a lot of different interpretations. But, but yeah, I mean, certainly at a, at a minimum, we have to reach a, a level of if we're going to have the state acting in a community – Right. That state force has to be accountable to the community in a way that it is currently not. Yeah. Uh, And obviously there's a lot of different policies and proposals and how to change that and what that means. Um, That will obviously play out. I don't think we have time to get into all that. But at the core, when it comes to law enforcement, yes, this notion of legitimacy. Right. The fact that these officers are serving a legitimate purpose that we, the community, have agreed to and is, you know, kind of in line with what we expect as a community, that should be a bar that we have to make sure we get over, right? And there's lots of different pieces to getting to that bar, but the state exists, you know, this is a democracy, right? You know, the state exists to serve the will of the people. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that the state acts, you know, and this is the most egregious, when the state acts to suppress, you know, either that, either through police action or, you know, on the, on the flip side through voter suppression, right? You know, we know that if you, I've only voted by mail. I've only ever voted in person. Literally my first election when I turned 18, which was a primary in Oregon. After that, 
we, Oregon went to vote by mail. All by mail since. All by mail since, right? Yeah. So then I moved here, and I thought I immediately registered permanent absentee, but somehow I didn't. So the very first election here, I had to go okay. and vote in person. Uh, other than that. No line, I'm sure. No Just line. Walked right up. Yeah, I walked right in, like, yep. you know, walked right out. Give you a sticker, I, I voted. Give, I give me a sticker, I voted. But, you know, other than that, every election I've ever voted in, I've voted by mail. This sure. notion of yeah. uh, when election day happens, and it's November, and it's raining, and it's cold, and people are standing in line for, mm-hmm. like, and you know, six hours. I'm like... How is this even possible? Yeah. And the fact that we now know, you know, based on multiple studies, that that is way more likely to occur in minority neighborhoods, right? Like, that can't happen. It doesn't right? happen by accident, nor can it happen for a democracy it, to function. It cannot happen, right? That is people taking your power away by saying, not only do we not make it a holiday, so on a work day, you don't have to go stand in line mm-hmm. for hours and hours and hours. And perhaps now with COVID, expose yourself to disease risk. It's just, it to me is, this is, the, this is the lowest hanging fruit, right? We have to make sure that when the state is acting, you know, either in terms of, it, it, you know, your basic rights as a citizen or in terms of, you know, taking your rights through law enforcement, we, we just can't have racial disparities, you know, that has to be something where we collectively as a society are working very hard to make sure that those don't happen. Well, if we're going to call ourselves a democracy, we kind of have to get the voting piece right. Well, yeah, right? And it's, you know, and it's just that, you know, the voting piece and then also the representation piece, right? You know, yeah, you have exactly. to deal with the gerrymandering and all the other stuff that kind of keeps the minority voices from being heard in the legislative process so that then, you know, we can have laws which allow you know, force or whatever it is uh, to be applied to that community in ways that are disproportionate. So uh, the good news is that there's no shortage of things to talk about, Bryce. Uh, We could go on and on and it would be fun too, but um, we pulled on some threads here in the last few minutes that that sort of maybe foreshadow previous or not previous future conversations so if people are still wanting to listen to us after that yeah to the you know the the (laughs) The, three people still out there um send us a question who aren't depressed by what we've (laughs) just uh you know left you with but right well bryce good to get back in the studio with you and um you know these these conversations we we kind of worked our way through it i hope that listeners will give us sort of some leeway to think out loud and work through these things. Um, and if listeners have any suggestions or guests or topics they want us to cover, please please send them in. Um, Bryce, thanks for being here. Happy to be here as always, Justin. Until next time. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors, These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson, Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes, and finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.